the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this Snowpocalypse Monday. Okay, maybe if you lived at the coast, you got a little smattering of snow. And we've had snow falling uh, this afternoon, but... Nothing like we had expected. I didn't need the generator, didn't need to put the snow tires on. Just another day living the dream. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is uh, engineering today's program. James Blend producing. Glad to have you with us. Among other things, we're going to talk with Drew Dick. He is the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. The book is published by Moody Publishers. And uh, Drew Dick may sound familiar. He lives in the Portland area with his family. We'll talk with him about that in our next hour. Uh, and then we'll uh, take a look, of course, at some of the, uh, the day's news. Now, the Super Bowl was last night. I enjoyed the game, although it was fairly uneventful. You kind of want a, a high-scoring game. You, it was, you know, you want to see some major event happen during the course of the game. You want it to be close, and then you know the fortunes of one team over the other changes. None of that happened. It was a, a, a an homage, if you will, to the defense. They kept the score low and wasn't all that interesting. But the Patriots won. I think I mentioned. Last Friday that we are a Patriots home. I say we because Dan Rice likes the Patriots. He has for many, many years. Therefore, I am a Patriots fan. In fact, on our drive out to my sister's house where we watched the Super Bowl on their big screen TV, I trained my mother who could care less. She barely knows what's happening in in football, although she had two sons who played it. And um, my brothers and my father thoroughly enjoyed watching it. So she tolerated it for many, many years. So I trained her while we were driving out. Uh, Now, Mom, if the Patriots score, you need to say yay. And then she would yay. (laughs) Now, Mom, if the the other team fumbles, you need to. And so she went through the motions. And whenever something would happen, which wasn't that frequently, I would turn to Mom and she would give the obligatory yay. That's about as much excitement as uh, we enjoyed in this whole thing. Well, members of the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots, they earned a double salary for their uh, title victory over the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday. The NFL's collective bargaining agreement mandates that all the players get the same paycheck in the playoffs. But and paydays depend on a team's postseason performance rather than an individual player's on-field prowess. So I thought this was rather interesting. By winning Super Bowl 53, each Patriot player earned $118,000 for one game. Uh, Members of the losing team, the Los Angeles Rams, they earned $59,000. I would have taken that had it been offered. Uh, Postseason pay shares can be significant downgrade for players with hefty contracts. For example, uh, Tom Brady earned $15 million or nearly $900,000 per week during the 17 weeks of the 2018 NFL regular season. Entering the Super Bowl, members of the Patriots and the Rams had each earned $83,000 in playoff pay. 
Broken down by rounds, players received $29,000 for their appearance in the uh, divisional round, $54,000 for their appearance in the conference championship. And since both teams had a uh, bye week during the wild card round, players didn't receive a pay um, share that week. That had to have been a tremendous loss. For the last years, Super Bowl members of the uh, victorious Philadelphia Eagles each earned 112000 while members of the losing Patriots, 56000 So the winners um, earned a little bit more this time around, about $6,000 more than, uh, than last time around. But there you have it. Also, I should mention that America's most famous groundhog, Puxatani Phil, did not see his shadow on Saturday and predicted an early spring. Now, the truth is, the groundhog was uh, summoned from his hibernation, he trotted out in front of a large group of people, he probably squinted and looked around wondering what on earth was happening again this year. And all of that was interpreted as Phil not seeing his shadow and therefore predicting um, an, a, an early spring. According to legend, if the rodent sees its shadow, then it will retreat back in its burrow and winter uh, will continue, but if it doesn't see a shadow due to overcast skies, then spring will arrive early. Either way, the thing goes back to burrow and spend the rest of the winter as they would do in their natural uh, surroundings. But anyway, there you have it, Puxatani Phil and about seven other famous groundhogs uh, did their thing this weekend, and uh, that was on Saturday this year, and there you have their prediction, sort of. Well, in developing news and a wide-ranging interview before the Super Bowl and ahead of uh, the State of the Union on Tuesday night, the president vowed to win the partisan uh, battle over his long-promised border wall. At this point, it sort of devolved into, are we going to call it some sort of um, uh, technical name other than wall and and provide the same thing. He said the the Democrats House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is very bad for our country and doesn't mind human trafficking at the border. Sort of a broad interpretation. I think that she was very rigid, which I would expect, but I think she is very bad for our country. She knows that uh, you need a barrier. She knows that we need border security. She wanted to win a political point in quote. Well, it is true that some Democrats were willing to um, uh, agree with the president, um, but in trying to unify the party, the speaker has managed to prevent that from happening. With it, uh, the official White House theme for the speech being choosing greatness, the president is expected to strike a more conciliatory tone and emphasize unity in his State of the Union address, which will be a bit of a challenge after what he just said about the speaker, who will be seated directly behind him. Uh, but he's clearly not backing down from his demand for funding for a border wall or something That looks like a wall, but is called something else. Well, the government is uh, currently funded through the 15th of February, could be shut down again if a bipartisan group of lawmakers doesn't reach an agreement over a budget with the border wall, a clear sticking point. Both Democrats and Republicans, Trump and Pelosi, remain far apart on that issue. The president has repeatedly suggested he will call a national emergency if Congress does not provide funding for a wall. Now, it's not expected he will do that during the State of the Union, but may well do so shortly after. Well, as I mentioned, the New England Patriots broke one record and tied another by beating the Los Angeles Rams 13 to 3 to win the lowest scoring Super Bowl in history and match the Pittsburgh Steelers as the NFL's only sixth Lombardi Trophy winners. The matchup shattered the record of lowest scoring Super Bowls to date. Super Bowl uh, let's see, seven, when Miami Dolphins beat Washington Redskins by a score of 14 to seven in January of 1973. New England rookie running back Sonny Michael, or Michelle, which is, which is it, Michael? Michelle? 
whatever his name is. Uh, anyway, he scored on a, a two-yard run with roughly seven minutes remaining to give the Patriots a 10-3 lead over the Rams. Kicker Stephen it's Gus- Michelle, by the way. Thank you. I thought it was. Yeah. Um, he later added a field goal late in the fourth quarter to close out the scoring. Well, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam reportedly met with top aides Sunday night amid a growing chorus of Democrats calling for him to resign with the uproar over his alleged appearance in a medical yearbook uh, photo showing one man dressed in blackface and another in a KKK robe. The Democratic governor so far has refused to resign. Initially, he apologized uh, for the image that he seemed to suggest was him, but then denied being in the photo at all. It was on his page in the medical journal, so why it was featured there is another question if it wasn't him. Still, Democrats are concerned the controversy surrounding Northam could provide a distraction as they prepare for the 2020 presidential election. They're skeptical that he can continue to effectively lead. So far, he's resisting, and his lieutenant uh, governor is embattled as well with accusations being made public, which he says are politically motivated, at least the timing of them. Meanwhile, jurors in the drug trafficking trial of Mexican drug lord uh, El Chapo Guzman has uh, are, are expected to begin deliberations today in the three month trial. That's seen many twists and turns. Prosecutors say that uh, as head of the uh, Sinaloa cartel, Guzman oversaw a drug smuggling empire that flooded the U.S. market with at least 200 tons of cocaine, more than $14 billion of it. The defense say cooperating witnesses have made Guzman a scapegoat for their own crimes and have urged jurors not to fall for the myth of El Chapo. Well, we'll continue with some of the developing news in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the developing news stories from the day. Savannah Spurlock, the 22-year-old mother who vanished last month, was taken to a home in Kentucky by the three men with whom she was last seen, police revealed on Sunday. In an exclusive interview, a Spurlock who gave birth to twins in December was last seen on surveillance video on the 4th of January after leaving the other bar in Lexington with three men. Lieutenant Colonel Rodney Richardson, who's the assistant chief of police with the Richmond Police Department, says that Spurlock was last seen, uh, her last location was at a home in um, Gerard, Gerard County, uh, located some 40 miles from the bar. Uh, we also know that she ended up at a home there sometime after leaving with these three men. Uh, they did not know Savannah prior to meeting her at the bar. What happened next, they are still trying to investigate. Well, on this day in 1999, um, um, Amando Diallo, an unarmed West African immigrant, is shot and killed in front of his Bronx home by four plainclothes New York City police officers. The officers would be acquitted at trial. On this day in 1997, a civil jury in Santa Monica, California, finds O.J. Simpson liable for the deaths of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Coleman. And on this day in 1974, newspaper heiress Patricia Hearst, 19, is kidnapped in Berkeley, California, by the radical Symbionese Liberation Army. And it was just about this time, 20 years ago, that that ship ended up on the um, coast here in Oregon. I'm referring, of course, to um, the new Carissa that ran aground uh, off Coos Bay on February 4th, 1999. Well, as I mentioned, embattled Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said Saturday that he wasn't uh, in a racist uh, 1984 yearbook photo of two men dressed in blackface and Ku Klux Klan garb, despite admitting he was 
uh, in the picture a day earlier. He did, however, acknowledge darkening his face for another occasion that same year when he dressed as singer Michael Jackson as part of a talent contest. Now, I'm sure this was all quite amusing to him. Uh, And the fact is, there was a page in the yearbook from the medical school. It featured him in various uh, poses, one with a car, another in sort of cowboy gear, another with uh, the blackface and Ku Klux Klan, and then a formal picture of himself. Why uh, that picture would be placed with the others where he is clearly seen as himself is uh, not altogether clear. Uh, But I'm sure he found it amusing at the time. Now, we're talking about 1984. This wasn't 1945. It wasn't 1950. Uh, This wasn't amusing at that time. It's not amusing now. Uh, The governor uh, also continued to assert that he won't uh, resign over the photo controversy, but he may not be allowed to stay in office, although there's no legal way to remove him uh, by those who have decided that he can no longer um, serve as a moral leader in the state of Virginia. Uh, When I confronted uh, when I was confronted with the image, he says, I was appalled that it appeared on my page as if he just learned that this was decades ago and he would have seen it at the time. But I believe them and I believe now that I am not either of the the, uh, people in that photograph, he said at a press conference at the governor's mansion. And again, there's a, a page featuring him as an individual with pictures of him as an individual in various poses, uh, one with a vehicle, another of the cowboy, a formal picture, and then this Um, Ku Klux Klan and blackface image. So I don't know why that would have been associated with him if he didn't at least endorse it rather than pose for it. Well, he apologized for the picture appearing on his page. He called the image offensive and racist. Well, at least everyone's in agreement on that, but said that he had nothing to do with the preparation of the yearbook and that he, he did not purchase it. He acknowledged that he had initially admitted to uh, being in the image, but said that in the hours since I made my statement, I reflected with family and classmates from that time, and it affirmed my conclusion that I am not the person in that photograph. Well, he said uh, that while he did not attend the party where the picture was taken, he did attend one the same year for which he said he darkened my face. And this is a quote as part of a Michael Jackson uh, costume. I look back now and I regret that I did not understand the harmful legacy of an action like that, he said. However, he went on to note that he had gone on to win that contest in part because he could perform Michael Jackson's signature dance move. Well, I feel so much better about the whole thing because he apparently could mimic the dance move of Michael Jackson, who had issues of his own. Um, When asked if he still was able to perform the dance... I don't know who asked him that, but Northam paused to look at the space next to him as if he was about to attempt the move before his wife uh, said it was inappropriate um, circumstance. He also said that he did not expect Virginians to believe him immediately or to forgive his actions right away. I am just asking for the ability to demonstrate that the person I was is not the man I am today. Now, if that's not him in the picture, I'm not sure who the person he was is or was. You get the idea. Well, the photo was first published by Big League Politics on Friday, immediately resulted in a firestorm of controversy leading to Democrats both in Virginia and across the country calling for him to resign. It raises for me the question of whether or not there's a statute of limitations on offensive behavior. Now, we're not talking about a high school student. We're not talking about an undergraduate. We're talking about a man who was in medical school, a fully grown, fully formed uh, male individual who should have known better if he had any sense of what's appropriate and not. I know for some people dressing up like the Ku Klux Klan, that's just a, a funny thing to do 
to put on blackface. But for those who lived it, whose families were directly impacted by the Ku Klux Klan, who ended up, in fact, in the Pacific Northwest as a result of that kind of an encounter where your life was threatened and all that you possessed uh, was in danger. It, it, it's not funny. It's just not funny at all. I remember one year, um, some of our neighbors, three boys in our neighborhood, came to our door for Halloween dressed in Ku Klux Klan outfits. And my mother opened the door. She saw the three of them standing there, and she immediately reverted not to the friendly housewife who loved all of her neighbors and who loved her, uh, who was about to hand out candy, but she was furious. And if those boys hadn't immediately identified themselves, they would have been seriously injured. It was not a joke. It's not a joke today. Uh, I know for some people, well, it's just hilarious. We're just mimicking something from the past that's not a joke. In any event, um, whether or not this was the governor, uh, I don't know. Um, but it's a serious thing. And I, I wish people would take it as seriously as it ought to be taken. Enough said. Is there or should there be a statute of limitations on offensive behavior? And uh, is evidence of one's life from that point moving forward, should that be taken into account? It's a rhetorical question, but I think as a culture, it's one we need to ask very seriously. And particularly in an age where everything you ever thought, every stupid thing you've um, done can now be traced on the Internet and will be there forever. Every teenager who's done something that he or she may regret at some point in the future may be subject to this same kind of scrutiny moving forward. Your employers, um, your families that you may associate with, they're going to look and see what kind of a legacy you left online. And it's very sobering to consider uh, that you leave a, a trail of information about yourself that may or may not reflect your core principles and values, but stupid things have a way of catching up with you. And uh, even kids need to think a little more soberly about uh, what kind of a footprint they're leaving behind. Just a thought. Well, the Labor Department's Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, said the economy added 304,000 jobs last month, higher than analysts had expected. The number of employed Americans, 156,694,000, was slightly below last month's record, and the unemployment rate increased a tenth of a point uh, to 4.0%, which is uh, historically quite low. But the labor force participation rate increased a tenth of a point to 63.2%, the highest it's been on uh, the president's watch. In January, the nation's civilian non-constitutionalized population, consisting of all people age 16 or older who were not in the military or an institution, reached some 258 million, uh, lower than it was last month of those um, 163,229,000 participated in the labor force by either holding a job or actively seeking one. Well, that may not mean a whole lot in terms of sheer numbers, but the participation rate was 62.9%. When the president took office, it showed little chance, a uh, change rather since then as retiring baby boomers offset additions to the nation's workforce. We're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Drew Dick. He's the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Might be a good read right about now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president is moving to make over the ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the most oft-overturned court of appeals in the country, which has delivered some of the most, well, stinging judicial setbacks to his agenda. 
Trump announced three nominations this week to the San Francisco-based appeals court, which covers California, Arizona, Hawaii, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and of course, Oregon, and the eastern part of Washington state. Earlier this month, the president renominated two other judges for the Ninth Circuit. We're very happy to have these extraordinary nominees. Carrie Severino, chief counsel for the Judicial Crisis Network, told the Daily Signal, it doesn't change the Ninth Circuit majority to Republican nominees, but when we are talking about future three-judge panels, the odds are a lot better. Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham will oversee the confirmation process for the nominees and said he hopes for bipartisanship. I'm very supportive of the nominees submitted by the president to serve on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, He said in a prepared statement, these are highly qualified nominees. I'm hopeful they will receive wide bipartisan support. These nominations continue a trend by the Trump administration of selecting highly qualified men and women to serve on the federal bench, end quote. Well, for the Ninth Circuit, the president announced his intent Wednesday to nominate Daniel Bress, 39, a lawyer with the firm of Kirkland Ellis LLP, Daniel Collins, a former associate deputy U.S. attorney general who now is in private practice, and Kenneth Kayul Lee, 44, a former associate counsel to President George W. Bush, also now in private practice. All three men are from California. Bress and Collins both clerked for the late uh, Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Trump initially uh, nominated Collins last year. Uh, He nominated um, uh, last year and this month renominated federal magistrate Judge Bridget Bade, a 53-year-old from Arizona, and Eric Miller, a 44-year-old from Washington State, a partner in the law firm of Perkins Coy, who works in its Seattle office. He initially also nominated Patrick Bumastay, a 40-year-old, a federal prosecutor in California and former Justice Department lawyer during the George W. Bush administration to the Ninth Circuit. But on Wednesday, he instead nominated Bumastay. Uh, as a judge on a lower court, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California. The Ninth Circuit has six vacancies, three in California, one each in Arizona, Oregon, and Washington. Filling these vacancies would bring the balance to 13 judges appointed by Republican presidents and 16 appointed by Democratic presidents. The uh, Ninth Circuit is known to be very liberal, sometimes called the Ninth Circuit by uh, circus, rather by conservatives, is among the appeals court whose decisions are most overturned by the Supreme Court. However, some contend the court has become more moderate in recent years. In November, the president bashed the appeals court, which was set to uh, be the next court to hear a case on his administration immigration policy, saying it's a disgrace what happened to the Ninth Circuit. Well, we'll see what happens next. And certainly we'll follow that story. Well, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, knew exactly what he was doing when he invited Pope Francis to visit the Arabian Peninsula to inaugurate the UAE's Year of Tolerance. The visit, which is currently underway, represents an historic first in 1,400 years of Islamic history, and it's impossible to exaggerate its significance. So says Johnny Moore, writing on this historic visit now taking place. Never before has a sitting pontiff been invited by a Muslim ruler to visit the peninsula, which also plays host to Islam's holiest sites of Mecca and Medina. The visit is not taking place in the shadows either. Pope Francis will deliver a public mass for more than 120,000 residents of the United Arab Emirates in the National Stadium. That gathering, which will represent one of the largest public gatherings in the history of the Arab sheikdom, will be broadcast on live television throughout the entire Islamic world, as will the Pope's visit to the uh, Sheikh Zayed's Grand Mosque and his uh, meeting with various religious leaders from around the world who are gathered here 
to commemorate his visit. Well, adorning the streetlights of Abu Dhabi today were flags, two flags, the flag of UAE and the flag of the Vatican. Meanwhile, in a profound statement to the broader Islamic world, the Pope was warmly greeted upon his arrival by the Grand Sheikh of Egypt's Al-Ajir University, the oldest and most serious institution of Islamic learning in the entire Arab world. Astonishingly, one of Saudi Arabia's most important daily newspapers included on its front page above the fold an article entitled, Saudi Arabia may feature in future papal visit. Well, that same Saudi newspaper also tweeted, hashtag Pope Francis unprecedented three-day visit to the UAE will not only mark the first official papal trip, but also carries hope with it of a new era of religious tolerance in the Gulf, end quote. Well, nearly every Arab language newspaper in the entire region is featuring the visit on its front page. And at one of, um, uh, or rather all of these efforts have an obvious intention They're meant to signal a new era in the Arab world for a new generation that is tired of uh, the perversion of their religion by extremists. So we'll see how this uh, this works out. The prime minister and vice president of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, put it more eloquently, saying we have learned from hundreds of thousands of dead and millions of refugees in our region that sectarian Ideological, cultural, and religious bigotry only fuel the fires of rage. We cannot and will not allow this in our country. We need to study, teach, and practice tolerance and instill in our children, both through education and our own example, end quote. Well, all of these efforts have an obvious intention. They're meant to signal a new era in the Arab world for a new generation that's tired of um, what's happened up to this point. A longtime member of the government agreed, telling uh, uh, the writer of the uh, the column recently that it's not sufficient to talk about abstract concepts like human fraternity and peaceful coexistence. We have to do something about it. Well, many um, such actions are being undertaken, but one that particularly struck uh, the writer was an announcement made by the noted minister of culture, Her Excellency uh, Nora Al-Kayab. Uh, that the UAE would be rebuilding two churches destroyed by Daesh or ISIS in Mosul, Iraq. Those churches are adjacent to the very Grand Mosque where the leader of the so-called Islamic State announced his now decimated caliphate. Rebuilding those churches represents a profound act of solidarity with Iraq's beleaguered Christian community and a demonstration of the triumph of peace over the terror that ravaged Iraq just a few years ago. This really is quite remarkable. One wonders where this fits in what we know scripture says about this period in time. Well, the United Arab Emirates has long been a beacon of openness, freedom, and tolerance in the Islamic world. Those values have uh, emanated from its famous business and tourism cities of Dubai and Abu Dhabi. But this week's events have taken those efforts to another plane entirely. Uh, they are fodder of history, examples of profound leadership in a tribunal time, and they deserve the commendation of the entire world. They also merit the notice of the Nobel Committee. Reverend Johnny Moore, a commissioner of the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom and the president of the Congress of Christian Leaders, observing what's happening there at this time. Taking a look a bit closer to home, the number of um, crunchers for Oregon's public pension system are set to deliver a status check to the system's board Friday, and the prognosis is not good. We're talking about PERS, unfunded liability, that grew by 43 billion dollars in 2018 grew by 4.3 billion dollars and the situation may be worse than it appears hmm 
Uh, Ted um, Sickinger, writing for the Oregonian, points out that the public employee's retirement system, like investors everywhere, had a tough 2018. U.S. stocks' worst year in a decade was capped by a fourth quarter plunge that wiped out trillions in wealth and most gains for the year. The pension fund's full year uh, return of 0.48 percent preliminary results show falling well short of its assumed earnings of 7.2 percent. As a result, system actuary uh, Millman Inc. estimated that uh, PERS unfunded liability grew by $26.2 billion, a $4.3 billion increase. And its funded status declined from 73% to 69% in assets for every dollar in dollar in liabilities. That's obviously not good news, but Millman uh, suggested the situation may actually be worse than it appears. That's because the system's uh, 0.48% return does not reflect fourth quarter results for its investments in private equity partnerships, which comprise about 20% of the portfolio. Now, those results always lag by a quarter and therefore won't be reflected until the end of the first quarter of 2019. The supposition is that private equity valuations will adjust downward, reflecting the 15% decline in the overall stock market that took place in the fourth quarter of 2018. Again, PERS unfunded liability grew by $4.3 billion last year, and the situation may be worse. The um, Millman uh, estimate, uh, the final report, is expected on Friday, the board report. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 45 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, we will be hearing from Drew Dick. He's the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. He'll join us in our second segment of the second hour of today's program, the first day of the week. Okay, just thought I'd throw that in. Well, in an editorial in the Oregonian, they suggest that Oregon lawmakers, um, well, they act like they've skipped economics. There's a lot of that going around. It's not just limited to Oregon. It would be unprecedented, the editorial read, and outlandish for Oregonians to require new legislators to take a basic economic history test before taking office. Some legislators might fail. How embarrassing for them. But it might also teach lawmakers some important principles that they don't seem to get with Senate Bill 608's goal of price controls. History shows it's problematic to have the government control prices. Televisions aren't a necessity, but people use them to get information and entertainment. So wouldn't it be nice if the government intervened and limited how much the price could go up? It would provide Oregonians with information, entertainment, security. Television sellers and manufacturers wouldn't like it one bit. And what would they do? Well, we don't have to guess because it's happened. In communist Poland, the government kept prices of televisions artificially low. Televisions became scarce. That same tale has been repeated again and again throughout history when governments have kept prices artificially low for various goods. Conservative economists will tell you that. Liberal economists would tell you that. And they both tell you that there um, has been a similar sort of mess when lawmakers start messing with what Oregon lawmakers are going to mess around with next week rent control. Well, this week, Democratic lawmakers are determined to move forward on rent control legislation. Senate Bill 608 attempts to do a number of things with the goal of improving renter security statewide. The bill would make it harder to remove tenants from a building. It would also limit rent increases for tenants to one per year and limit those increases to 7% above the annual change in the consumer price index. What will that do? It will offer immediate protection for some tenants, but landlords will look to front-load high rents. 
Landlords will have less incentive to keep up with maintenance or improve buildings. Landlords will have a new incentive to convert apartments to condominiums. Builders will have less incentive to build new apartments. The end result will be a good deal for a lucky few, but a broader decline in housing affordability. We already have that problem. Oregon lawmakers should be looking at creating incentives for more apartments to be built, not adopting policies that will suppress them. Now, they're always given pretty attractive names. Uh, uh, the uh, bill is designed to protect renters, um, but the name oftentimes betrays what it actually does, and this seems to be one example of just that. We'll see what happens with the bill as we follow it in the legislature. Well, a man, I use the term loosely, a man is planning to sue his parents um, in India for giving birth to him without his consent. Now, think about that for a moment. They gave birth to him without his consent, which, of course, he could not have given. Um, it's part of an anti-natalist movement saying it's uh, morally um, unacceptable for adults to have children. Well, Raphael Samuel said that he had a great relationship with his parents, but has compared to having children to kidnapping and slavery. Well, the 27-year-old from Mumbai is an anti-natalist who believes it's wrong to put an unwilling child through the rigmarole of life for the pleasure of its parents. The anti-natalist movement is gaining traction in India as younger people resist social pressure to have children. Well, there may not be anything wrong with social pressure, I mean, resisting social pressure to have children, but I'm not sure this is the approach that's most effective. Speaking to the print, Samuel said, I love my parents and we have a great relationship, but they... Uh, had me for their joy and their pleasure. Uh, My life has been amazing, but I don't see why I should put another life through the rigmarole of school and finding a career, especially when they didn't ask to exist, which, of course, they could not. He runs a Facebook page called Niall, let's see, Niall and And, which has hundreds of followers on which he regularly posts anti-natalist material. One image is uh, captioned, parents are hypocrites, with a text saying, a good parent puts the child above uh, his wants and needs, but the child itself is a want of the parent. Having a little trouble following some of the logic here. A similar meme posted on Facebook, uh, the Facebook page reads, if parents truly know what is good for their children, why did they have them? Another asks, isn't forcing a child into this world and then forcing it to have a career kidnapping and slavery? In yet another picture, he writes, the only reason your children are facing problems is because you had them. Uh, Some anti-natalist activists in India also argue that having children is a strain on Earth's resources and avoid procreation for environmental reasons. They, they never volunteer, however, to reduce the problem by failing or rather ceasing to exist. Another activist uh, said, we don't want to impose our beliefs on anyone, but more people uh, need to consider why having a child in the world right now isn't right. Somehow their existence is okay. Future generations, not so much. Well, his page um, entitled Child Free India, which means, of course, an end to India, wrote last month, should we continue to bring more children in this world and accelerate the process of environmental and social degradation? Well, of course, um, the existence of the writer does just that, but never considers 
doing something about that. Do you think existence is pain and not bringing a child into the world is a guaranteed way to avoid unnecessary suffering to the child? We are a group of people who have decided not to reproduce. We are child-free Indians. Well, he's certainly entitled to be a child-free Indian, but again, I fail to follow the logic as the website presents it. And again, he's considering suing his parents for having him without his consent. Sorry, I'm trying to soak that one in. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. In the second hour, we'll talk with uh, Drew Dick. He's the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets of Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Also in the next hour, we're going to talk about an article that appeared in World Magazine, a new phenomenon that you may not be familiar with, um, peer pressure. Uh, to change one's gender, whether or not you are gender dysphoric or not. We'll talk about uh, that article, and Tony Perkins uh, writes about what parents used to worry about as opposed to what parents are concerned about today. And even um, advocates for the LGBT movement um, are having some difficulty comprehending some of what's occurring at this point. Just the latest uh, iteration of the sexual revolution, uh, which tends to outpace um, even those who embrace it, their ability to keep up. So we'll get into that in just a few moments as well. Well, Clark says I have another minute, but if I start something, then I'm going to run out of time. If I don't start something, then we'll be early. So I'm not sure what to do, Clark. What would you suggest? Just keep talking. Just keep, just stretch it out. Well, let's talk about the snow that didn't happen. We had snow on the coast. We didn't have much here. It fell, but it didn't really Stick. We are being told that there's a possibility we may have some more snow at some point uh, in the future, in the next few days, but it's not likely that will stick either. How am I doing, Clark? Have we filled the time? Oh, what a relief. There are days when that music is just, well, music to my ears. This is one of them. All right, we're going to take a break. News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Drew Dick. He is the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. By the way, uh, science uh, confirms and complements what the scriptures teach. No big surprise there. I just thought it was worth mentioning. He'll join us in our next segment. Well, we're being told that teachers across the state of Oregon say that they're seeing outbursts and disruptive behavior from students at an unprecedented rate. And the alarming trend has caused many of them to question if they can continue to provide a safe learning environment. Classrooms are in crisis. Verbal, physical, sometimes violent outbursts are plaguing Oregon classrooms. The situation has gotten so dire that the Oregon Education Association, the union that represents some 44,000 teachers across the state, plan to release a report this week calling classroom disruptions a significant and growing problem in Oregon classrooms. Well, teachers describe verbal, physical, and sometimes violent outbursts in elementary schools. They say the incidents aren't limited to classrooms focused on students with a special needs, but affect all classrooms. The situation has gotten so dire they're planning to release the report. KGW recently gathered eight elementary school teachers to hear from them their stories about disruptive behavior. And all eight described the problem as reaching crisis level. The outbursts from students were so commonplace that kids don't go home and talk about it anymore, explained one first grade teacher. 
Um, Melinda Ryan was one of the teachers who joined KGW for a frank conversation about classroom disruptions. They came from the Portland, Beaverton, Hillsboro, Gladstone, North Clackamas school discs, districts. Rather, Generally, we're unable to teach because there's so much behavior, sometimes from the morning until the end of the day, said another fourth grade teacher, uh, Cindy Han- Hanma. They talked for nearly an hour describing the intense meltdowns happening in their classrooms, literal screaming. They're screaming for help, literally. Sometimes that comes out in suicide threats, death threats, said one first grade teacher, Kristen Basselhoff. Almost every teacher described seeing students throw furniture. They're throwing furniture. They're running through the building, going to the office, throwing chairs at windows. And it's really intense. Uh, The incident sometimes leads students or teachers uh, getting hurt. Uh, I've been punched and kicked, said one teacher. I've had colleagues bitten and slapped, said a kindergarten teacher. I've had fingernail marks down my arm. Well, it's difficult to quantify how much the problem of disruptive behavior has grown because most districts don't keep uniform data about student outbursts. However, data looking at teacher injuries offers some insight about the scope of the issue. Numbers obtained by KGW, who was behind the study, show that in the Beaverton School District, there were 1,789 incidents where teachers were injured on the job during the 2017-2018 and 2018-29 school years. Of those injuries, 72% were caused by students. In the Hillsborough School, Dist- school District, rather, there were 634 incidents in the last two years where teachers were injured on the job. Of those, 65% were caused by by students. The Salem-Kaiser School District just started this year tracking teacher injuries caused by students. They reported 551 total incidents this school year where a teacher was injured. Of those, 404 of those injuries was caused by a student. Well, the station asked Portland Public Schools for similar numbers from 2007 to 2018 and this school year. The district could uh, only provide the number of incidents where workers were injured and students were involved. The district reported 121 such incidents uh, in the last school year, 72 in this school year. I don't think the students want to hurt someone. They just don't know how to communicate their feelings, says a teacher with 19 years experience. Um, The teacher is currently a teacher on special assignment or TOZA in the Beaverton School District. In that role, she's often sent to help in classrooms where students have had an outburst. At the end, students will say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, she says. Uh, They're sweet, innocent little children who are experiencing trauma and have an adverse home life. A home life, rather. They need help, they need support, and I don't feel like at some of our schools we have that kind of support. Well, this is, it seems to me, alarming if you have a son or daughter that's either in public schools or about to enter public schools. This has to be somewhat frightening. Educators also describe what they're um, uh, calling herding. Uh, Educators have to herd students. Uh, That's where they guide a child back to safety without touching them, even if that student runs out of the classroom or building. Often they try to run around you. They go around you. They hit you, says one teacher. Uh, that's usually when a lot of the physical aggression occurs. Teacher, teachers rather told stories of students running away every week. They see it as a game for a lot of these kids. Now you're playing chase with them instead of having to learn. They got to run around a location for their, of their choice, rather. 
Well, lawmakers are at least intending to react. State Representative Barbara Smith Warner, she's the chair of the Joint um, House Joint Committee on Student Success, heard similar stories from teachers during a statewide listening tour. You have teachers who say, I'm afraid to grab kids who are about to run out into the street. That's the way we are being told that we are supposed to deal with this, and it's ridiculous. Well, a 14-member committee visited 49 schools over the last year. I heard a story about a kindergartner breaking the eardrum of the teacher, says one of those committee members. I heard stories about second graders throwing a chair through a window. Well, former, former rather committee member and state representative Carl Wilson heard from parents concerned with how these incidents are being handled. Why is the disruptive child not pulled from the classroom? Why is that child left in the classroom when all others are pulled out? Well, former Hillsborough School Board member Janine So Classelman, who represents House District 30, heard stories from teachers in her area, and it goes on and on and on. Now, there were rules passed under the previous administration that made it very difficult to discipline students. Uh, we saw that in the, the recent shooting in which a student who otherwise would have either been expelled or at least removed from the classroom was uh, not just permitted but required to stay in the classroom. It has uh, the, the ruling had a purpose that I think most people would uh, find um, helpful, but the carrying out of it and it being broadly applied did not work well. Uh, anyway, this is what teachers are faced with. We're just talking about the state of Oregon. Meanwhile, parents used to worry about peer pressure, encouraging their kids to experiment with alcohol or drugs or to have sex. Now they have to worry that it may encourage their kids, especially daughters, to change sex altogether. If you're a parent of a child or a teenager, you owe it to yourself to read World Magazine's latest cover story, which you can find online, which addresses the relatively new but expanding phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's abbreviated ROGD. Well, advocates for the LGBT movement have long argued that you can diagnose gender dysphoria in children who are consistent, insistent, and persistent in expressing a discomfort with their birth sex from an early age. Just like we are um, told about people who identify as homosexual, people who identify as transgender are born that way, we've been assured by those advocates. Well, now, however, social trends are evolving so rapidly that even the pseudoscientists of the sexual revolution are having a hard time keeping up. Children, especially girls who have successfully navigated childhood without a hint of gender confusion, are suddenly, shortly after hitting puberty, declaring that they are the opposite sex or gender queer or agender or one of a dozen other gender identities. What's going on, parents are asking. Is this a biological issue? If it were, we wouldn't expect such declarations to suddenly emerge from a half a dozen girls in one friend group at the same time. And we wouldn't expect them to be to use almost the exact same language in making such declarations. Well, last summer, Dr. Lisa Littman of Brown University published a study based on interviews of over 200 parents of children who had experienced rapid onset gender dysphoria, as they call it. Most of the parents were not social conservatives. Eighty five percent support allowing legal civil marriage for same sex couples. But they were taken aback by what happened to their children. Two things were common to the parental accounts, neither of which had anything to do with being born that way. There was a strong element of social contagion. It's something we're not supposed to talk about, but it certainly is a phenomenon. A social contagion at work. And the young people were being coached by websites as to how to demand and get puberty blocking or cross-sex hormones and even for some elective uh, double mastectomies. 
In 2019, such teens are not inviting persecution to be true uh, to themselves. 60% of parents thought um, coming out as transgender increased their child's popularity at school. Being trans is a gold star in the eyes of other teens, wrote one. Well, Family Research Council's Kathy Roos and Peter Sprigg have previously written about the Littman study and the transgender backlash it provoked. It now seems clear that among the values parents need to instill in children from an early age is an appreciation for how God made them male or female. And limiting children's time on the Internet and social media is not just to make sure they get their homework done. There are other reasons for that as well. And again, I would encourage you to uh, go to World Magazine. You can download the article uh, that was uh, mentioned uh, a moment ago uh, that covers this phenomenon. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. Up next, Drew Dick, author of Your Future Self. We'll thank you. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. The next book we're going to talk about is a guide for sinners, for quitters, and for procrastinators. That pretty much covers the crowd. The book is titled, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. It's written by Drew Dick. It's a guide for, well, sinners, quitters, and procrastinators. Well, self-control plays a pretty central role in the thousands of decisions we make, large and small, the decisions we make every day. Yet we tend to think of it as boring, confining, the cop that shows up and shuts down the party. But the truth is, people who cultivate this vital virtue lead freer, happier, and more meaningful lives. And if you don't believe that, stick around because we're going to explain how. Now, most people lack self-control. It's not something that comes to us naturally. And this book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, uh, this book comes from uh, my guest's enlightened and unsettling insight about his own lack of self-control. You could insert your own name into that scenario, but he speaks with theologians, pastors, sociologists, and psychologists, and he explores the science and spirituality of self-control research strategies for fostering this essential trait, and he runs experiments in the laboratory he calls his life. With compassion and humor, he shows his readers that cultivating self-control is foundational for freedom and flourishing, and who doesn't want to be free and flourish? Well, Drew Dick is the editor of Moody Publishers and the former managing editor of Leadership Journal. His work has been featured in USA Today, The Huffington Post, Christianity Today, and CNN.com. He's also author of Generation X Christian and Young Yawning at Tigers. He lives with his wife, Grace, and their three children right here in the Portland area. He joins us today to talk about our future. The book is titled, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about it. Well, this is a bit of a challenging subject because we all like to think perhaps we have more self-control than we actually do. What motivated you to take on this subject and to remind us that uh, if we are willing to do the work, if you will, we're going to be pretty pleased with ourselves down the line because self-control is essential to good life. Yeah, I, I wish I could say I was drawn to the topic uh, purely out of academic interest. Um, but the truth <laughs> is, um, it was something that I've struggled with in my own life. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it was something that's not very serious. You know, it's like, oh, man, I failed on that diet again. Um, or it could be in the in spiritual disciplines in my life that I would try, you know, every day, hey, I want to read my Bible, I want to get into to, you know, prayer every day, um, and failing to do that. 
And so I started reading up, like you, you mentioned in the introduction, uh, both from the spiritual and the scientific perspective, on what's going on here when, when our self-control falters and how can I grow stronger? Because you're absolutely right. It's essential uh, to live a life of freedom and flourishing because, as we know, I mean, take an example like if I would go nuts and spend on my credit card, well, that might be, feel pretty good today, but then down the road, uh, I'm going to face higher interest rates, bigger payments, and my choices are going to be confined. And that's kind of a paradox when it comes to this issue, that if we exercise a little bit of discipline today, uh, down the road, our life will get better. Now, a little bit of discipline can day, today can be interpreted as a life of very little um, excitement or, uh, I don't know, uh, happiness. But what you described is what it really takes for the long term for us to thrive, does it not? Right, exactly. And I, I'm not saying that, you know, you have to live sort of this uh, monkish, austere life <laughs> in the present. <laughs> uh, but it's just kind of looking at every, all the little choices you face throughout the day and asking yourself as a Christian anyway, saying, God, what would you have me do in this circumstance? Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, and sometimes it's a clear choice between something that's very sinful uh, and is going to disrupt intimacy with God and with others. Um, but sometimes it's just a choice that, you know, maybe you can sit there at night and watch Netflix for three hours, but you can also, you know, spend some quality time with your children or read a book or do something a little more constructive um, and so it's just a matter of having the wisdom and, and the self-control to say yes to those better, healthier, holier options. Now, how does willpower relate to self-control? Are they the same thing uh, or are they different? And is that a, an important difference? Yeah, they're a little different, but obviously related. So this was one of the big um, aha moments for me early researching this book. I looked at a big experiment that sociologists did about 20 years ago that demonstrated that willpower is a finite resource. Um, that is, it runs out, and it runs out pretty quickly. We like to think that we can withstand temptation indefinitely or that we can continue to concentrate if we're just determined enough on something and exert um, our willpower. But the truth is, it only lasts for a little while, and then it's gone. And this was really enlightening for me in my own life. It made sense um, out of some of my routines and habits because, Often I'll have a hard day at work, and then I come home and I tend to snap at my kids or just, you know, um, it's because my willpower is depleted. Uh, and so the first takeaway for me was just to be conscious of that, to preserve it. If you're going into a difficult situation, make sure that you're refreshed and replenished. Um, and then the other piece of good news is that your willpower can grow as you use it, as you intentionally seek out harder things to do. Uh, you do get stronger. Hmm. Now, we know that in Scripture, um, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and as we think about the Christian life and this uh, this thing called self-control, um, what does the Scripture say about how we can develop that? I and mean, as you pointed out, self-control is related to willpower, but how do we develop uh, self-control in the Christian life as we are endeavoring to, well, be self-controlled? Yeah. And this is where this is the best news to me is that when it comes to developing self-control, because let's face it, it's hard, right? Yeah, um, we're not we're not called to do it alone. Um, and the, probably the most famous mention of self-control in Scripture comes in Galatians five, like you you mentioned, where Paul lists it as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and we think of it as an independent virtue. It's like okay, it's something I just have to kind of bootstrap my way to success with. 
But Scripture portrays it as something that cult, that grows in our life when we're connected to God. Um, after all, Paul is invoking a metaphor there or an analogy. He's saying just like a, a plant or a tree has to be rooted in the soil in order for fruit to grow, in the same way we have to be connected to God. So that's huge. Uh, God promises to empower us to be able to exercise self-control, and I think that's the first thing that often we neglect if we're not in the Word, if we're not mm-hmm. connected to God on a daily basis. I know from my own life, when I start the morning with some prayer and scripture reading, I am more self-controlled in all the other areas of my life, Yeah. Uh, whether it's exercise, eating, um, saying no to spending too much, you name it, um, that really boosts my self-control. You know, what you've said so far is, is really encouraging that both willpower and self-control um, can grow and develop over time. So that gives even the worst among us a bit of uh, of encouragement. What does brain science have to say about self-control? Now, you pointed out when it comes to um, willpower that we have a finite uh, amount, but it can be developed uh, over time as we exercise that muscle, if you will. What does it tell us about, um, first of all, our limitations and then that capacity uh, that that can expand? Right. Yeah, and one of the exciting things for me was just seeing how so much of the research out there um, backs up and complements what Scripture says. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that willpower is depletable, well, that should be surprising to Christians. We know that we're finite, fallen creatures. Um, you know, Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion says to his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak, right? Um, and another thing that I found really interesting and helpful was studying habits at the sort of neurological level and seeing what's going on in the brains. So you only have so much willpower, and it runs out. Even if it grows a little bit, it helps, but it's never enough. So what you need to do is pay close attention to the habits that you have in your life. And when I say habits, all I mean are those unconscious routines that we do every day. We like to think that we're going about our lives making decisions about every single behavior, but the truth is, about half the time at least, we just default to habits. And that can be bad. I mean, I think of there's a restaurant that I'll go to, and I'll come in, and I'll, I'll say to myself, I'm going to order a salad. I'm going to order a salad. And then the waiter's going around, and sure enough, I order a bacon cheeseburger because <laughs> that's what I'm conditioned to do every time. Uh, it's really frustrating, but I have a habit, and it's easy to split back into it. So when you look at what's going on in your brain when a habit is formed, what it, what it does is it takes it from the, the prefrontal cortex of your brain and stores it in a different region altogether, And then when that happens, you no longer have to exert effort to maintain that behavior. So the person who wakes up and runs for five miles every day, they're not sitting there slapping themselves going, hey, I need to do this. I need to to exercise self-control. They just do it automatically. It's a habit. And so the key is to get those healthy, holy behaviors to become habitual in your life so you can preserve your willpower um, and not have it run out. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with uh, Drew Dick. He is an editor at Moody Publishers, the former managing editor of Leadership Journal, and the author most recently of A Guide for Sinners, Quitters, and Procrastinators. That's why I'm reading it. Your future self will thank you. Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Drew Dick. He is the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets of Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. And the exciting thing is that the two tell a very similar story. You do what the scripture says. You're actually following what the uh, the uh, science says as well, which isn't surprising since we know the author. Anyway, the uh, book is, uh, is a great uh, resource for all of us who want to master self-control or at least have a little bit of it. Uh, the book provides us with a great resource for doing just that. Now, what is the ultimate purpose um, of self-control? Is it uh, simply to, to demonstrate our capacity to um, save ourselves from th- certain unhealthy things, or is there a, a more meaningful, broader purpose to this notion of self-control? Well, self-control certainly has some practical benefits. Um, and study after study show that people with higher levels of self-control have better life outcomes when it comes to career, relationships, health, you name it. Um, But as a Christian, when I look at this topic, I think, wow, this cannot just be something that I uh, develop for selfish reasons, right? So when I looked at a lot of the secular books on this topic, and many of them were helpful, but I often saw that I noticed that a lot of them emphasize power and success and, you know, just achieve your dreams no matter what they are, that kind of attitude. But for Christians, the first thing that we got to get straight is why are we developing self-control mm-hmm. in the first place? You know, why are we living a disciplined life? And if you go to Scripture, um, the first reason is to glorify God, ultimately. We want to glorify our Creator. And then second, we want to love and serve other people well. And when we get those priorities in the right order, not only is it more is it biblically um, advisable, uh, but then, and, and research has shown this, when you attach spiritual significance to your goals um, and have what researchers call sanctified goals, uh, you are actually more effective in exercising self-control, in being disciplined. So it just makes a lot of sense as well as just being biblically uh, appropriate. Is the failure to control oneself always a sin? I mean, it's always unfortunate, but is it always a sin? (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't say it's always a sin. You know, I mean, if someone offers you um, a cookie or uh, kale and you choose the cookie, I think it just means your taste buds are working properly. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a great sin. Now, it gets a little more confusing because if you, if you eat one cookie, that's not a sin. But if you eat a whole box, you know, then you're flirting with gluttony, which I'm ashamed to say that I have done. No um, comment on my part. <laughs> no comment. Yes, I'll take the fifth, right? Um, and so there is that blurry boundary between what's sinful and what's not. Uh, but, you know, self-control is, is instrumental when it comes to avoiding things that are not necessarily sinful, but just unhealthy for you. And, of course, when it comes to those bigger, weightier matters, you know, being faithful to your spouse, uh, not cheating on your taxes, um, you name it, that are that are going to keep you from sinning and really um, hurting others and ultimately your own life as well. Mm. Now, talk a little bit about your self-control training. Yeah, that, it was fun. So, I, I, you know, part of this was just a selfish project because I wanted to really grow in this area. <laughs> and so, um, like you mentioned, I tried to apply what I found to my, my life. And it was, it was both um, enlightening, frustrating, and ultimately hopeful. Um, one of the things that I realized I had a bad habit with was every morning when I rolled out of bed, I wanted to read my Bible. That's the way I wanted to start my day. But instead, I grabbed my phone off my nightstand and checked social media. Um, and 
no matter how many times I told myself, okay, I'm going to, instead, tomorrow I'm going to read my Bible, I would end up on social media, and then I'd look at my email, and then my kids would come into my room, and the day starts, and I'd never get around to reading Scripture. Well, studying habits really helped me to replace that bad habit with a good one. So what I did is I ended up grabbing my big black Bible, a physical Bible, plunking it down on my nightstand, getting rid of the phone, putting it on the other side of the room, Mm. so that when I woke up, I had this habit of consuming content right away, and I could just roll out of bed, and there's my Bible instead of my phone. That's just a simple little thing, but man, it has sure helped when it came, when it's come to reading scripture every day. I, I rarely miss now, whereas before it was something I did only sporadically, I'm ashamed to say, and understanding just a little bit about how habits work, how you can replace old habits with new ones really helped me in that area. Well, it does sound so simple, but it is practical and it's a way to retrain ourselves to do what becomes something of a reflex, and uh, it's just it's wise counsel. Now, talk a little bit about the relationship between God's empowerment. We talked a bit about the Holy Spirit enabling us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and human effort. Both are required, but can you help us understand how they work together? Yes, I knew this was kind of a, a big thorny topic when I tackled this, because you kind of go, well, isn't God just supposed to empower me to live the Christian life and exercise self-control? Um, Well, I think it comes from confusing two theological categories. So there's salvation. That's when God saves us. That is completely all God's doing. We don't participate in that, I don't believe. Um, That's 100% God. But then there's sanctification. That's the the $10 theological word for how we become more and more like Jesus throughout the course of our life. And self-control is involved with that, and it does require some human effort. I think some people, you know, if you use the word like striving with a lot of Christians, they'll jump on you and correct you and say, no, you're you're obviously doing it wrong if you're striving. Whereas in Scripture, striving is always a good word. We're supposed to strive after Mm -hmm. godliness, right? Um, We're supposed to resist sin, resist the devil, uh, mortify the flesh, kill the flesh, right? Um, And so it does, and, and Paul talks about running the race and all that kind of language. Um, so there is a, a, a way that you, you can strive in your life that is productive, and self-control is one of those areas. The good news, like I said, is as you do strive for godliness, God doesn't leave you on your own. He comes by the power of the Holy Spirit to empower and encourage you. And the key is to strive with the Spirit instead of against the mm-hmm. Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the key in my mind. You gave us an example a moment ago of how intoxicating having uh, technology nearby first thing in the morning can be and preventing you from doing the thing that your heart really longed to do, and that's to open God's Word. We live in a time when um, uh, digital distractions are everywhere, television, entertainment, every uh, digital device that's available. Um, Talk a little bit about growing self-control, as as you've done, in the midst of our uh, digitally distracting culture, because that's, that's one of the primary challenges we face uh, is putting the phone o- over to one side first thing in the morning is a great way to start the day. But are there other things for the middle of the day or in the evening when you're tired and the temptation is to just do what you've always done, and that's turn on the tube? Mm. Yeah, that is such a huge um, challenge that we face today. And it's actually a challenge that's unique to our time. People 100 years ago mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about this kind of thing, right? Um, and so, and it, And it heightens temptations in a couple of ways. First of all, it actually pushes a lot of temptations right into your face. I mean, when it comes to looking at illicit images online or shopping online or gambling, 
all these things are easier and more accessible because of new media. Um, and then secondly, uh, a lot of this new media has just done weird things to our brains. It's, it's kind of shrunk our attention spans. It's like you said, it distracts us. We're just inundated all the time with messages and, and updates and you name it. And it's really, really hard to focus deeply on spiritual practices and on relationships when that's happening. Um, so one of the things that I advise is there, there's a strategy called the Bright Lines Strategy. And basically, that's just about setting hard and fast rules for your technology use. We've had to do this with our, with our children. I've had to do it with myself. Um, one of the things um, I'm trying to institute right now is just no smartphone past seven or, well, actually past dinner time. So, you know, it's easy just to sit there in the evenings on the couch mm-hmm. or you reach for your phone, you watch some TV. Uh, another thing that we've done is we call it uh, uh, screen-free, um, no screen Sunday. So on Sundays in the family, we're just not going to uh, get in front of the TV or be on an iPad or, or iPhone. Uh, and we, it's been hair or miss, I'll be honest. But when we do that, man, it's like a little slice of heaven. You, <laughs> you actually you know, get to sit and look at each other um, and, and talk to each other, play a board game or something. So just having those kinds of um, those, those rules in your life, because if you just leave it to your willpower, if you just say, you know what, I'm going to try to look at my phone a little less today. You know, on average, we look at our phones 150 times a day. We oh, my goodness. 37 hours a week. Um, and if you don't intentionally put some hard and fast rules in your life, it can easily dominate your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lee Strobel said of uh, your future self will thank you. Few books have the potential to change your life as much as this one. And I would encourage you, if you would like to learn the secrets of self-control, pick up a copy of your future self will thank you. Secrets to self-control from the Bible and brain science. It's a guide for sinners, quitters and procrastinators. Drew Dick, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been a delight. Really appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. You too. All right. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it was 20 years ago today, February 4th, back in 1999, when the new Carissa freighter ran aground. It was during a storm. The Coast Guard airlifted the Filipino crew off the ship. They started to worry about the 400,000 gallons of fuel on board that vessel. First, the military tried torching the ship to burn off the fuel in the hull. The ship split in half. Emergency response teams tried pumping out the oil to no avail. So using a tugboat, uh, they t- tried rather to uh, pull the bow section into the open ocean to sink it. But in a violent storm, the bow broke uh, loose, drifted, leaked more fuel. It eventually washed ashore in Waltport. Well, the tug tried again with a bigger rope, finally pulling the bow out to sea. That's where the Navy tried firing 70 rounds from a destroyer in an attempt to sink the bow. It didn't work. A torpedo from a Navy submarine finally sent the 440-foot bow into its watery grave, but the stern remained mired in the sand. An estimated 70 to 140 gallons of fuel leaked, damaging the beach, covering the birds. And by summer, the ship's owner vowed to tow the stern away. But fall storms forced them to abandon the salvage effort. Well, more than two years after the new Carissa first ran aground, then-Governor John Kitzhaber called for the boat's owner to pay to have the state remove the wreckage. In the fall of 2003, 
A jury found the owners and operator of the new Carissa guilty of negligent trespass and ordered them to pay $25 million. Finally, in the summer of 2008, work started to remove the wreckage. Crews removed the last pieces of the new Carissa from the ocean floor on the 28th of September, 2008, just a few months shy of a decade after the vessel ran aground. And that happened 20 years ago today in a storm. Well, today the beach is covered in white powder, you know, something we were expecting, um, but it didn't happen. Well, we've seen a little snow this afternoon, but none of it's sticking, at least where we are. It's a little too wet for all of that. Uh, But the um, new Carissa is gone. Snow has taken its place. Well, the Oregon Freedom Rally is coming up on the 9th. That's this Saturday. It's going to be hosting Star Parker as guest speaker. She's an American syndicated columnist, author, and founder of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, or CURE. Also at the Freedom Rally will be top religious rights defender Christian Wagoner of the Alliance Defending Freedom, as well as uh, Carol Tobias, president of National Right to Life. Um, Star Parker is the founder and president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education out of Washington, D.C. It's a public policy institute. They fight poverty and restore dignity through messages of faith, freedom and personal responsibility. She was herself on welfare for a number of years until she decided this was not helpful to her and her uh, her future. Star consulted on federal welfare reform in the mid-90s, then founded Cure to bring new ideas to policy discussions on how to transition America's poor from government dependency. Today, she regularly consults with both federal and state legislators on market-based strategies to fight prof- uh, p- poverty. Rather, uh, Her organization has uh, a number of programs. In 2017, she joined the White House Opportunity Initiative Advisory Team to share ideas on how to best fix our nation's most distressed zip codes. And in 2016, CPAC honored her with the Ronald Reagan Foot Soldier of the Year. She's authored several books as a regular commentator on national television and radio networks, including the BBC, EWTN and Fox News, and as a nationally syndicated columnist for Creators, which carries um, in some of the largest newspapers and news websites in the country, reaching some 7 million people. Well, she's going to be right here in the Portland area uh, for the Oregon Freedom Rally. We're going to try to... uh, We're working on arranging a conversation with her or with one of the other speakers for the event coming up this Saturday. Uh, But you can check that out. Again, the Freedom Rally right here in Portland. I mentioned, I believe, at the close of um, Mission Connection that Luis Palau was one of the presenters. He's, of course, an international evangelist. We have claimed him for our own. He and his family got some difficult news last month about his now year-long fight against stage four lung cancer. A, uh, as reported at the Palau.org website on the 11th of last month by Kevin Palau, doctors confirmed that the 84-year-old has had a setback after recent progress. It was reported in Christian News Northwest that um, and uh, repeated uh, Kevin's uh, report. Sadly, the news was not what we had hoped. Although his blood work continues to look great, the doctors confirm the tumor has begun to grow once again. This comes after several months of very positive response to the immunotherapy um, treatments. As a result, the doctors are switching to a new treatment plan and will monitor progress closely. Palau himself gave a very sober assessment uh, at Mission Connection. Um, uh, in Tualatin, where he was the featured speaker in the opening evening, it was uh, thought that he might have to be replaced by his son. But I have to tell you, when he approached the podium as an evangelist, he was as strong as ever. Uh, Palau uh, spoke energetically for an hour, but he acknowledged the 
that uh, the cancer is intensifying and said doctors are saying he may only have several months left. Whatever the outcome, I am ready to go, he said. Well, in his uh, website statement, Kevin Palau described his father as still in great spirits and quite active. He said his father spent a busy week last month with the Palau team discussing plans for this year's outreach, including festivals in couple of places I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Madrid, Spain, um, Swansea, Wales, Tyler, Texas, Cape Town, South Africa. He went on to say, my brother Andrew will be the lead evangelist for each of these campaigns, although dad is still hoping and praying he will be healthy enough to take part in the Madrid Festival in June. Also on this year's uh, schedule is the release of Palau's most recent book, Palau, A Life on Fire, that's published by Zondervan. That's uh, due out in June. And of course, the release of a major motion picture on his life. Information about both can be found at palauthemovie.com. I mention it once again because as he continues his struggle with cancer, but to live joyfully and fully in God's presence as God's man and an evangelist, uh, we have the opportunity to pray for him. And if you've ever thought about expressing either through the website or sending a note or however you communicate your gratitude for the Palau uh, for Luis Plow in particular and the Plow organization in general, if you'd like to send an encouraging word or you'd like to just let him know how his ministry has blessed your life or a member of your family's life, this would be a great time to communicate uh, to let uh, him and the family know um, just how his ministry has impacted you. So keep that in mind as well. Finally, Tim Tebow, who's nearly engaged, or rather newly engaged to uh, former Miss Universe Demi Lee Nell Peters, made praying on one knee, Tebowing, famous. So it's a perfectly timed response to someone yelling, Jesus, at a golf range is no surprise. Now, of course, they were not crying out to God for help. They were using uh, the Lord's name in a rather profane way. Well, Tebow was participating and the Wrangler Celebrity Charity Shootout in Atlanta in support of the Tim Tebow Foundation's annual Night to Shine. It's an event that gives thousands of people with special needs a VIP prom experience. Well, Pat McAfee, who hosts the Pat McAfee Show and is a retired NFL punter for the Indianapolis Colts, uh, Colts rather, engaged as, uh, or rather emceed, as each celebrity hit 10 balls to try to win $10,000 for the charity of their choice. Well, during one of Tebow's swings, McAfee showed uh, uh, show producer yelled, Jesus, uh, the New York uh, Mets outfielder responded without hesitation, loves you. <laughs> so Tebow, Tebow didn't uh, miss a beat. Uh, the name Jesus was uh, said, the intent perhaps slightly different. Tebow responds immediately, loves you. Might want to keep that one in mind next time. You're offended by the misuse of the name of Jesus. Hey, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Mike Berry, Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive, Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. The book is published by Baker. He'll be my guest on Tuesday. We're working on a couple of things on Wednesday, but I should mention Tuesday is also the evening for the State of the Union address. We'll anticipate not only the address itself, but the rebuttal and some of the... uh, uh, the images and uh, things that are going to be done to try to communicate a message during and before and for that matter, after the State of the Union address. On Thursday, we'll talk with Jason Thompson, the director of Portland Fellowship. We'll catch up with the work that they're doing right here in our community. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up and have a bit of fun. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow to hear from Mike Berry, winning the hearts of your child. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.